another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I am your co-host, Nathan Druitz, local extension educator for crops in Stearns, Benton, and Morrison counties. And with as all, er, with me, as always, is Mike Cruz, another local educator out of Houston and Fillmore counties. How are you doing today, Mike? Fantastic, Nathan. How are you doing? All right. It's a nice sunny day out, although we could use some rain. We would actually prefer some clouds at the moment. So, Yeah, a little bit of rain down here wouldn't hurt, uh, wouldn't hurt anybody. Yeah, well, we could definitely use it up here. We're, we're starting to struggle a little bit with drought, at least at the time we're recording this. So, yep, yep. So, uh, so Nathan, we're here today talking about our last uh, podcast interviewee, Mr. Jake Schur. Um, we went over a number of things with Jake when when he was with us. Uh, everything from a his transition out of dairy. Uh, into the number of people that that helped support his operation and, and a whole host of uh, things that he dealt with on his on his crop operation. Um, but I, I really want to start today with this whole idea of of team building that he had. Um, you know, extension was always a player in that, but he had a whole host of people. Can you remind us uh, the maybe some of the other organizations that Jake has worked with over the years? Absolutely. I mean, of course you have extension and, and of course my predecessor was a huge part of that. He also works a lot with your soil and water conservation districts right there in, in Benton County. And so they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're out there helping him out and he's of course on the board for that now. So definitely gets a chance to interact with them quite a bit. And of course, then you have your co-ops, uh, their agronomists and seed dealers and, and other individuals such as that. So he's got a he he did that. He has definitely built himself a heck of a team to have around him to help him with the various agronomic issues as well as soil conservation. Right now, in the in the here and now, we're talking about his crops and and things of that nature and how he's managing his soil. But that team also supported him when they were going through their their transition out of dairy. Uh, I remember him mentioning that he worked with a adult farm business management for. 20 plus years, something like that. And annually they would sit down and go through, Hey, here are your options, here are your budgets. You know, they'd run the numbers on dairy versus steers. And, and it really helped him actually make that transition out of dairy a lot easier. You really see that influence come out in, in how he approaches his inputs into that field over there, you know, into his farm, because things that he always looks at is, does it make sense now, but also does it make sense 10 years down the road? And so what is what is his profitable mar- you know, what is his margins on that? And what does he need to do to make that those numbers work so that way he always he he has a pretty good handle on what inputs actually pay in the long run versus the short run and how to utilize that to make sure to maximize his profits so that a way, yeah, maybe he's not making the most money every year versus some of these other growers, but he's always consistently making and turning that profit. And I think that's just something that is, I, I think that's an excellent way to approach that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's this, Hey, I need to survive for 10 years type approach. Right. And I'm going to make, I'm going to play the long game, right? I'm yeah. not worried so much about this year. I'm going to play the long game. And what I thought was really cool is when he was describing the the day they sold the cows, right? He said they they milked them in the morning and then they shipped them out right away afterwards. They didn't have a sale. They didn't have this all these unknowns that were associated with it, right? They they already had a buyer. They had everything lined up. And he said, yeah, it was weird that afternoon because it was quiet. 
But then the next morning he went out and, you know, he did heifer chores or whatever he had came back in and had breakfast. He's like, yeah, this is okay. You know, yeah. like he, he knew he had all these unknowns already taken care of. And so he's like, yep, yep, this is okay. Like I've got the financial part figured out. I know what I'm doing next. I got the personal side figured out. It's like, yep, yep, this is okay. And that really goes back to, he planned for it. He knew what was going on. He had all his ducks in a row. You know, when, when you have that kind of a plan, a lot of times you talk to growers and, and having that plan, it's like, well, yeah, that's fine. But things change, you know, will change dramatically over the course of a year. And while that might be true, still having something set, a plan set in, in, you know, on paper, something that you could follow along and make those changes as you need to, and having something that you can stick to is going to be, you know, is incredibly helpful because then you don't wind up in this situation where suddenly things are changing and you remember, well, what was I going to do before anyways? And and how is this going to work? And it takes a lot of that stress out. And I think what that does also is it also allows you to introduce new things easier into that plan. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a rigid plan in this case here, you know, he's got his 10 year plan. That's not necessarily rigid. He's more than happy. You know, if you get or at least in my experience with him, when you talk, when he talks about, well, I want to try this product or I want to try this practice, you know, one of the things that he always talks about is that 10 year plan. And, and even though it's, it's something that is, that is physical that you can see, it's also something where he can play with that plan then. And he, you know, and, and it allows him to organize that as you go along. And so I think that's plan, you know, plans only take you so far, but having a plan is still a really, really good idea. Right. Right. And, you know, from the educator side of it, it, to me, it really hits home this whole thing of that's why ag business management courses, the, the programs that come from our farm business management team, um, you know, when we're talking about our, our ag business people here in extension, you know, some of those things, it's, you might not see the, the payoff from it on day one, but if you stick with those things um, and you put the work in and follow through on a lot of it, like you said, be adjustable, right? Be flexible. But if you follow through and stick with those things, they pay off in the end. They really do. Well, that comes back to that idea of, you know, agroecology. I don't know if you've ever seen the graphic with the little bubbles and one of them, yeah, you know, in there is long-term versus short-term goals. You get, you know, at the end of the day, not everything we're going to do now is going to have, you know, it's going to be necessarily profitable next year. But if you stick with them, there's a lot of things out there that will benefit you greatly in five years time, 10 years time, 15 years time. And then again, maybe, you know, in in some cases, it may be like, you know, when you plant a tree, sometimes you don't, you know, depending on what you're planting, you may not expect to get the benefit out of that, but you do know that there's going to be a benefit there for future generations. And so I think that's uh, something that we need to, to really uh, hone in on in a lot of ways is really that long-term planning, because I think we all know how to short-term plan, but that long-term plan sometimes could be quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So from your experience working with Jake, um, let's, let's just kind of switch gears here a little bit and deal with one of the one of the things that he's I don't know, fighting or just trying to manage in his field. And that's white mold. Um, I know we talked about a number of different ways and different ways to go at it and uh, things of that nature. So I was just kind of curious, have you seen that same type of planning coming out of Jake when he's now faced with, you know, an issue that is as tricky as white mold? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the corn nematode issue as well, or the, you know, and the SDS issues, these are problems that are very similar. You know, you're not going to get rid of them in, in one shot. 
And so it, one of the things there is that he keeps well, you know, keeps track of that, those issues over the course of years so that he knows whether he's having an impact, whether he's improving or whether things are getting worse and maybe it's time to, to switch, you know, make adjustments. And, and the reason why we talk about white mold is because I think that's the easiest way to, to view that at that point, because, you know, his approach has been, you know, agronomics first and then working your way into towards chemicals and, and some of those approaches, making sure your genetics are appropriate and things along those lines. And I think that that's, that's going to pay off uh, last year. It paid off for him. And this year we're not worried about it at the moment. So <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, he's, he's definitely, I uh, just had a call with him here a week or two ago and you know, he's, his crops are getting ready to canopy. They're getting ready to, mm-hmm. to go up or they're already up there, which is better than I can say for a good portion of our central Minnesota area here at the moment. But that's the difference maker between someone who makes those kinds of plans and, and knows what's going on in his fields versus other, you know, versus other years where you can, you could see that and see where the threats are and, and how to address those as they come along. Yeah. Um, I don't think I can emphasize enough the importance of taking notes, right? Like actually taking notes, what's happening in a field from year to year, over 10 years, over 20 years, um, and just noticing whether it's weed pressure, white mold pressure, whatever it might be, right? Um, and now we have a lot of tools that are available, yield maps, for example, soil maps, for example, that allow us to take more in-depth notes and, and have a good filing system and whatnot. So I was I was wondering if, if you could speak maybe to, on your own experience of like, why is taking notes so important? Like maybe what are the, what are the top, you know, sets of notes that you like to take or think that are really important from an agronomic side? Weeds and diseases. Those are, those are the two big monsters, uh, weeds and diseases. You know, at the end of the day, soil types won't change for the most part. I mean, there is some change, but we're talking hundreds of thousands into the millions of years in order to make that happen. Yep. Not worried about, you know, once you find your soul types, yeah, you need to take notes there, but be, being aware of where what soul types you have, where it's important, but yep. it's it's not something that changes. On the flip side, uh, weeds and diseases are your two big monsters there, because especially for weeds, that's a perennial issue. You're not going to get away from having to deal with the weeds. And so it's important that you know what species you have and how you manage them. And, and so that's the first one. And then diseases, you know, the big, the big monster in the room there is if you get something that can hide out in residue or lives in the soil for long periods of time or things along those lines, that is, those, those are our concerns. And when it comes to that, that's when you start looking at your genetics, you know, especially in terms of diseases here, you're looking at genetics first, and then you're looking at agronomic practices. Do I maybe need to bury some of this residue? If, I, if, I'm, if I've got a lot of residue, is that where it's living? Do I need to take care of that? Or maybe, you know, it's just living in the soil. So now I need to be thinking in terms of, you know, again, going back to that genetics and maybe then thinking about chemical controls or biological controls where appropriate and things along those lines. And so I think that that's, uh, those, those are the two monsters that I see time and time again, where, if you've got a perennial issue and you, you know, you talk to growers and they're, well, I remember I had uh, a, a white mold issue, for example. I remember I had a white mold issue in this, uh, you know, a, a year or two ago and, and don't know where it's at. Don't know where, you know, location within that field. Well, that doesn't help us a whole lot because it's more difficult to manage if you don't know where it's at. And so that's, 
that's something where, you know, I always recommend, you know, it, it doesn't have to be an expensive option. The uh, web soil survey, you can go online, you could zoom into your field, you can get a nice field view of, of each one of your, of each one of your fields, you can get a nice picture, you get a little printout, and you go onto the field and where you notice you have issues, you circle and you take notes. It could be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be a $100,000 a year uh, platform or program. It could be as simple as just take it down on paper, put it in a three-ring binder and have it available. And, you know, and, and the, big, the big reason why I say this is it's incredibly helpful too when you're dealing with agronomists that, you know, maybe, maybe they're not necessarily your primary agronomist, but when they come out there, being able to have that conversation of, I have this, I have this water hemp issue in this field and I need to control it better. And being able to point out, okay, maybe it's only in half the field. Okay, so maybe we change tactics and we split that field in two and we manage it like you have two different fields at that point. Things along those lines, you know, can can really make a difference. And it also can make a difference on on your profitability on at the end of the day as well, because maybe you don't need, you know, maybe you have giant ragweed coming in from one side and water hemp coming from the other side. The chemicals that are going to control those two weed populations are not always the same. Right, right. So so you went down on a little list there on how to handle some of these issues. Uh, you first hit on genetics, and then you went to agronomic practices. And I think the third option was then consider what you can spray, chemical options, things of that nature. Is that about right? I think so, thereabouts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on the genetic side of it, I'm kind of curious, what do you see as being some of our best genetic options? Like where, where do you go with genetics when you're, when you're talking with a producer? Really, honestly, it's just make sure that you're out looking at hybrid and varietal trials. Mm-hmm. That's as simple as it gets. You know, it, every, every co-op usually has some uh, trial out there. Every one of your, or the, our industry around here, they all have hybrid trials around. Get out to those field days. I know we all get those postcards. We go, oh man, another another field day. Usually they provide free lunch. You get out there, you get a meal, and you get to look at some, you know, get to look at some varieties. And that's an excellent opportunity to get out into those fields, get a good uh, hard look at how those things are working out. And especially if you, you know, if you have a field where they know that they have a typical white mold presence or some mm-hmm. nematode issues or SDS issues, and they've got a trial there, that is an excellent opportunity. If you're dealing with that to get out there and take a look and see what genetics are going to fit best on your farm. Right. Yeah. And then you, then you follow up the, the genetic side or genetic option with um, agronomic practices. And I, I thought this was really an interesting one because you kept bringing it up when we were talking uh, with Jake uh, on both in the podcast and outside the podcast, right? And we talked a little bit about, okay, plant populations and how we handle that. But what are some of the big uh, agronomic practices that you think are maybe like the most important things or the where, where can we turn those dials, right? Where can we change the sliders and like play with the plant population to do one thing or another, just as an example? Well, that really depends, I think, greatly on what you're fighting. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and, and this is one of the biggest struggles here is when I think about probably the two most common issues that go butt up head to head. And this is the reason why we, I keep bringing them up because they're, they're fresh at the top of my head. Uh, we haven't had a whole lot new in terms of diseases this year because we haven't had a lot of water, 
Um, but that's really, you know, the, the weed control component versus your, your white mold control component. Because one of the things we do know for white mold is that if you're, if you have, if you're struggling with white mold, high populations of soybeans are, are really bad that you're just asking for it to hit, hit you hard. And so we want to see those populations drop. The problem there is you bring those populations down and, you know, if you bring them down far enough, well, you're going to be sacrificing weed control at that point, because now your canopy is going to be, it's going to take longer to get to canopy and, you know, and and you have to fight that battle as well. And so if you've got water hemp or giant ragweed in the same field as you do your white mold, then you have to figure out how do you balance those two. Right, right. And so, you know, it really depends on what you're talking about there, whether you're aiming for plant populations, whether you're doing row spacing, um, yeah, how, how, you, how you adjust those, whether you maybe need to do some tillage or maybe you need to leave it alone. Um, maybe there's, there's some opportunities to utilize some cover crops in some of these scenarios, things along those lines where that changes depending upon what you, what you have in your field and, and how to approach that. Right. Right. Um, and then finally you went to chemical control, right? Um, I kind of, I'm kind of curious, what have you run into as far as, uh, you know, with the producers that you work with, have they been really gung ho about, I want to jump on the chemical side of it first. And then you kind of talk them through genetics and these agronomic practices. Like how does that conversation kind of go? Depends again on yeah. what you're fighting. I mean, that that's the big monster in the room. There's, you know, it depends on what you're fighting. In the case of weed management, I mean, it's it's one thing. You know, there there are other options out there. It really depends on what their interest is in, you know, especially in terms of chemicals for weed control, because they're you know typically the conversation then is around okay, if we're gonna you know you're you're going the chemical route, let's make sure that we're doing our pre post plus residuals in both, make sure that we're controlling and holding back those weeds. Let's make sure we're using multiple effective modes of action. So going back to the first first part there, we got to mm-hmm. know what species we have out there because not all modes of action are going to be effective against every weed species that you have. And right. so you know, what you're using to control lamb quarters may not control water hemp and may not control ragweed. And you have to be prepared to deal with that. So, um, from that perspective, you know, it, again, it depends on that front there first. And then from a fungicide, you know, depends on what we're targeting, you know, something, you know, and it depends on the, the type of fungicides that we have. We have protectants out there. We do have some curatives and you have to figure out what's going to be effective against what a lot of that, again, goes back to that, know what you have in the field before you spray. And so, you know, if you have had issues in the past with things like maybe Northern corn leaf blight, understanding that you have it and then understanding the environmental conditions that underlie the potential to get it is important to into understanding whether or not you're at a greater risk this year for for that potential mm-hmm. issue and then of course that again every everything we talked about previously is going to influence that final control in terms of chemicals because if you know you have an issue in that right. field with say northern corn leaf blight there are corn hybrids out there that have been you know that they have a relatively high tolerance for northern corn leaf blight and so you have to understand the genetics you planted to know okay what is it actually going to pay for me to maybe put down a fungicide to protect against this and so you know there's there's a lot of that game to play that's usually the conversation that i end up having is focus on 
genetics, focus on the cultural, the mechanical, focus on a lot of these other things first that you can influence mm-hmm. on your own with your with the materials you have on farm right now, and then explore your chemical options. Yep. Yep. And I, I like the way you you put that, right? Because none of these are guaranteed fixes, right? And typically when we're doing one thing, we're giving up something else or we got to manage something else in a different way. And this is this is one of the, the points that I, I kind of keep struggling with to, to get across just to the general public, whether we're talking about crops or we're talking about garden stuff, whatever it might be, right? Is, you know, what you're trying to do is up your percentages of being successful. And and you you hit it right nail on the head, right? Like know where you came from, take those notes have a good plan in place, you know, have multiple voices, whether it's extension, soil water conservation districts, your co-op, you know, talk to a bunch of different people about it, have a good plan in place. But then, yeah, pick the pick the strategies and make adjustments that increase your percentages, your chance of being successful. Nothing's going to be 100%, but we can increase our chances of being successful. Every Everything that we do on a farm level, you know, all the way up to, you know, even, even a backyard garden, everything that you're doing is there to manage risk, right? Right. And you know, the risk that you're going to fail. And so make sure that you're stacking the deck, right? That's, that's what it comes down to stack the deck in your favor. If you do that, you're going to win a lot. And, and yeah, you're going to still lose some years, but the years that, you know, if, if you're stacking the deck, if, you know, if if you take it out, the gambling component of this to, Mm -hmm. or, or, basically tilt the scales in your favor, you're going to be a lot more successful than if you just simply go out there and start flipping coins. And that's, and that's really what this comes down to, you know, cause at the end of the day, you know, you made a great point there. Integrated pest management is, is highly important here. And that means that the chemical component has to also be there. This is mm-hmm. the thing. Integrated pest management is all of those things together in one, you know, in, into one management strategy. And so, you know, if you, exclude your chemical component you're no longer necessarily integrating all of those into this into your management scheme and that also provides other issues that we've got to deal with eventually so so here's a here's a good one for you how do you how do you build into your integrated pest management system a an effective way to control bears (laughs) i mean you know the, the the big the big thing there I, I don't know the answer to that that's probably a better que- question for DNR or uh, you know fish and wildlife but yeah I mean that's that's an excellent excellent question and I know that their answer here is trying to just simply keep them from you know the idea here is to try to keep them from feeding on the corn to begin with because once they get a flavor for it then you yep. run into the issues where the, even the cubs you know will come back. And that's where they're going to eat. And that's not a, a good, a good thing for anyone. So really a lot of it comes down to just making sure, trying, trying to prevent that uh, from, from being a perennial issue right out of the gate here, recognizing what it is and, and preventing that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, animal predation is, is something that's pretty common, right? Um, especially in, in a lot of our Minnesota landscapes where we have a lot of fragmented landscapes where we go straight from fields straight into woods. So we get raccoons, we get turkeys, we get deer. And yeah, I was just shocked when, when he brought up bears and had to describe the whole bear situation to me. I thought it was pretty cool. 
Yeah, it, it is definitely uh, a different a different conversation. Usually, the conversations revolve around deer, and yeah. that is <laughs> that is a common problem around here. I I've seen a lot of acres, and I was, I mean acres just mowed off from deer deer feeding mm-hmm. damage. Heck, even last year in my uh, one of my uh, trials out there in Oak Park, we actually had um, we actually had deer come in, and they were feeding and eating off the tops of my late planted soybeans. And so we lost a bunch of biomass from that alone, just because the deer loved our soybeans being planted at that point in time. Right. And so it's, it's one of those monsters in the room where you're, you're always going to deal with something, but there's not, not, a, <laughs> not something I was, I was prepared to, you know, not, not something that when I moved here, I was prepared to exactly deal with. Right, right, exactly. So, no, I'm just going through my notes here. I, I, those are kind of the main highlights I had from our conversation with Jake. Was there anything, uh, anything that you remember you wanted to chat about quick? Not, not to my recollection. I think that's pretty much about all that we had. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I, I would say the biggest takeaway that we had from Jake, which I think was great, um, was to build a team, you know, prepare, think about your next steps, whether it's one, five, 10 years down the road. Don't be afraid to adjust, um, but don't be afraid to kind of stick with the plan too. And like, have your good teammates help you put that together and, and move forward in a positive way. Yeah. I really don't have anything else to add at that point, you know, at this point, because I think that's pretty much the big, the big, the big the factors or the big story from this is, you know, what you mentioned teamwork and, you know, having that plan, you know, and even, even though maybe the the plan itself isn't, it doesn't always go according to plan, if you will. Uh, even though it doesn't always come, go according to plan, it's still better and it allows for more adjustments, a little bit more flexibility, even though you're adding a little rigidity in there. It allows for a little bit more flexibility and ability to evaluate what you're doing later on and, and allows for a lot better, a lot nicer uh, transitions into new practices and things along those lines. All right, well... As always, if you'd like more information, please you know, go to the University Extension website, as well as if you are, you know, if you would like to contact us or one of our local educators, we do there are contact there is contact information on the Extension website at the extension.umn.edu backslash local. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll see you again next time.